Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Austin, and uh, I'm on staff here at Mercy House, and I'm uh, excited by the opportunity to get to jump into the, the preaching rotation this semester. Um, so this morning, uh, we are on our third sermon in the chapter, uh, chapter two of Second Timothy, okay? So if you're following along, or invite you to follow along, you've got Bibles under your seats, uh, you've got your phone app, uh, whatever you'd like to use, but pull that out. We're in 2 Timothy. It's towards the end of the Bible, uh, and we're in chapter 2. You can follow along there. So if you've been with us last few weeks, um, we've seen this theme that Paul is encouraging Timothy, who was one of his disciples that he spent years. Uh, he tra- Paul trained up Timothy, and then Paul did ministry alongside Timothy. Now Timothy has been sent off, and so he's at this church in Ephesus where he is pastoring this church, leading this church, And Paul is writing him letters to encourage him, to help him to continue to endure, uh, to speak the truth, and to uh, be a a good worker, approved before God. So a couple weeks ago, Chris took us through some of the metaphors that Paul was using of being a a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, all these tasks that take this this real focus to to continue to endure and work hard in these tasks. Um, And he says that you're going to do this by being strengthened by grace. Right, which is slightly counterintuitive, and Chris unpacked that a bit. Um, now, last week, Patrick uh, showed us, well, what does it mean to be strengthened by grace? Well, we remember Jesus Christ. We remember Christ, remember what he's done, and that he is the reigning king, and that we are going to reign with him. So these are some of the ways in which we uh, are, are built up by grace so that we can be workers approved before Christ. Um, and so we see this theme of, of entrusting and remembering going on. So Paul says that he's had this word entrusted to him. So at the beginning of chapter 2, he's then saying, what you heard from me, Timothy, so I, I entrusted this to you, Timothy, now I want you to go and trust this to others, to faithful men and women who can teach it also. So he is passing on this gospel that he's received. Similarly, as Patrick was talking about last weekend, in verse 8, it says, he's telling Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. I want you to remember Jesus And now in verse 14, what we're looking at today, he's saying, okay, now remind them of these things. Okay, so you can see this passing on that's happened, that Paul has received the gospel. He's now given it to Timothy through their years of together. And now he's saying, Timothy, now pass this on to others, this this chain of discipleship. And if any of you are I've gotten involved with discipleship groups this semester, and you're getting a a taste of that as we're, we're building these relationships where we can pass on the gospel. But it's important in that passing on that we, we keep and hold to the truth of the gospel, that we don't let ourselves get distracted with all these other things that can take away from the truth of who Christ is and what he's done. So this morning, we're looking at the importance of words, of speaking words of truth. And the first thing we see here is that careless words are a disease, So Paul exhorts Timothy in two different negatives. He says, don't quarrel about words. Uh, And this this quarrel about words literally is a word that is like word wrestling. Like, don't don't wrestle with words. Um, And then he says to avoid irreverent babble, which I think obscures more than it tells us. What is irreverent babble? Uh, But literally this is like godless discussion or or, uh, sometimes it could be like fruitless discussion, right? So it's it's not doing anything valuable. If anything, it's, it's leading people away from God. And you might think, well, what's, what's the big deal, right? Like, if you, we have all sorts of random fun conversations with our friends, or if you're in classes, uh, you talk about things all the time, you think, this has nothing to do with real life. <laughs> How is this relevant? We're just discussing these little bits of minutia, and it doesn't seem that harmful, right? But Paul, talking about and thinking about the gospel, gives us a very different picture of how important it is to be careful with our words. He gives us a metaphor of gangrene. I don't know if you know what gangrene is, uh, but it is this, uh, it's the same thing today, basically, as it was in, in ancient Greece at the time. And it's this infection that rots through the whole body. So you can get what's called dry gangrene, where you just, like, one part of the body dies and falls off. Like, it turns black, and it's really gross, and then it falls off. But if you get wet gangrene, which is an infection, it actually spreads to the whole body and kills the body. I didn't put any photos in the slide because it's, it's gross. If you, if you are feeling a bit sadistic, 
or you can go look it up later and amuse yourself with that. It's gross. Um, but this word literally means to gnaw, right? Like this word for this disease is to gnaw. So like it, this infection eats away at the body until it's dead. So this is a really gross image, right? So Paul is not taking this lightly. Like this is really serious. It takes the body of Christ, which is one of his favorite metaphors for the church, and it eats it away from the inside out until it's dead. So words matter. The three of the ways he, he mentions that this speech is destructive, he says that it does no good and ruins the hearers. So this is in verse 14. So it does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So it's not producing anything valuable, right? It's not, it's not building people up. It's not encouraging them. It's not helping them in any way. But even more so then, he's saying that it leads in verse 16 to more and more ungodliness. So not only is it fruitless, but it's actually producing bad fruit. Right? It's causing people to live in a way that's, that's harmful and destructive and not reflective of the character of God. And finally, in verse 18, he says that it's upsetting the faith of some. Um, and I think this, this word here for upset can also uh, be translated more helpfully, because I think upset, and I think of like, oh, it ruffles my feathers, right? Like, oh, I'm upset. I'm kind of annoyed. But this word means to, like, to destroy, to overthrow, right? This is a much harsher, intense uh, thing that Paul is talking about here, that people's faith is being destroyed by this irreverent babble. Um, so trying to figure out what, what is Paul referring to here, right? Like, what, what is he saying that we should avoid and, act, and talk about? Like, it, it, he's not, it's not totally clear. Um, so I want to look at a couple other passages uh, throughout this time that Paul deals with similar issues, and I think that will help because he gives some different examples and will help uh, bring some light to this. But so in Titus, in the, in the letter to Titus, Paul's now writing to uh, another guy that he trained up and is on the island of Crete. So he's writing a letter to Titus and he's saying, he's, he's encouraging Titus in very similar pastoral ways to what he's telling Timothy. And he says this in chapter three, uh, starting in verse eight, he says, this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So what are these things? Well, just right before this, he talks about the, the, the gospel, that Jesus Christ is God, that he died for our sins, that he's risen and he's reigning, and this future hope that we have in Christ. So he, he sort of unpacks the mystery of the gospel. And then he says, this saying is trustworthy. So remember these things because... These things are excellent and profitable for people. So the gospel is building people up and bringing them life. And in verse 9, he says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So Paul is concerned here with protecting the gospel from those who would seek to, uh, to take people away from the truth of the gospel. And what he describes in verse 10 and 11 is, is what we consider kind of church discipline, right? That you confront somebody who's giving false teaching, and if they, they say, no, I, I'm not going to repent of this, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep spreading this teaching, then you bring more people in, and you confront them again, and you say, hey, you, you need to repent. This is false. This is not true, and it's, just, it's destructive, and if they continue in that, then you say, okay, you need to, you need to step out, right, because we want to protect the, the unity of the body of Christ that it's built up, and if you are causing dissension in that, you're causing division in that, then we're going to ask you to not be part of the body of Christ, so it's a very serious thing he's talking about here, and he, talks, he actually talks about this in terms of Ephesus. So in Acts chapter 20, Paul's in, in Ephesus. He's talking to the leaders there. Uh, in verse 29, he says, I know that after my departing, grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul's really concerned about these false teachers who are going to come and are going to dis uh, take people away from the truth of the gospel. But here he's talking about quarreling and irreverent babble. Right? Like, what is Paul talking about? And I, I was kind of trying to understand this and thinking, like, does he mean just like gossiping? He's talking about like personal squabbles, like arguing over, over little things. 
Is he talking about like speculation about the end times, right? Like pre-trib, post-trib, like, you know, trying to figure that out. Um, what is he talking about? Is he saying that we shouldn't be concerned about doctrine and theology? Because he seems to be very concerned about that. So I don't think he's saying we should avoid talking about that. Well, let's look at the actual example that Paul gives us. He gives us one little uh, snippet, and he says that um, this is in verse 17. Among them are uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. So this is, this is the example he gives us, that these people are saying that the resurrection has already happened. This isn't actually the first time that we've seen Hymenaeus. Uh, he's been, apparently been at Ephesus for a while. So in Paul's first letter to Timothy, uh, a few years before this, this actually comes up in chapter 1. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 18, he says, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, again, this, this is the gospel entrusted him, by rejecting this gospel, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So most people assume this is the same Hymenaeus uh, referenced here at Ephesus. And Paul's saying he handed him over to Satan, that they may not learn not to blaspheme. That sounds really crazy and harsh. <laughs> uh, and again, commentators think this is probably uh, talking about that same kind of church discipline that he's talking about in Titus. Right? He's saying we, we sort of put them out of the fellowship of the community in order that they would repent and come back. Right? We, we care about Hymenaeus. We care about Alexander. We want them to be part of the church. But if they're going to disrupt the gospel, if they're going to come in and try to, to uh, lead people astray, then we can't, we can't have that happening. So this is uh, probably what he means by handing them over to Satan, right? He, he's sort of saying, like, we're going we're gonna to give you this time of discipline uh, in, in, for, in order that you may repent and not blaspheme. So what is this thing that they're saying? The resurrection has already happened. Uh, does that they mean that all, everybody's come back to life already and all the dead people have risen? Probably not. <laughs> that, that clearly hasn't happened. That doesn't seem, I think we would know if that had happened. Um, it seems like an odd claim for them to be making. But this isn't the first time we've seen people push back on the idea of resurrection from the dead. So there's a few other places we see this. One is actually when uh, Paul is in Acts, or in Acts, Paul is in Athens, and he's talking there to the Epicureans and the Stoics. And he says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Right? So he's telling them Jesus rose from the dead, and, and they start mocking him. People don't rise from the dead. That's absurd. Maybe you've heard this claim today. <laughs> People still think that's absurd. And there's a few different reasons why in this context maybe they're thinking this way. Um, the Stoics had a variety of different ways of thinking about what happens after death, whether the soul continues on, uh, usually not in a physical, physical body. The Epicureans, um, some... Some people think that the Epicureans are the ones who are mocking and the Stoics are the ones later in the verse who are asking more questions. They're kind of interested. Maybe this could be real. And the Epicureans are the ones who are just outright, that's impossible. Because uh, these guys were basically materialists. There's, there's, they're like, there's no way the body could come back from the dead. There's no life after death. Death is sort of a release of the suffering from this life. Um, as far as Jewish tradition, we saw in the New Testament that the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. So Jesus talks about this. Um, and the Pharisees, uh, there's some variation, but mostly they believe in uh, that we are going to have re-resurrected re bodies. That our bodies are going to be resurrected into life forever um, in the life to come. So what, what is going on here? Well, uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus are their Greek names, which doesn't mean for sure they're Greek, but there's a good chance that they are. Um, so probably not so much coming out of the Jewish uh, tradition. So um, some people would say this is Gnosticism. So if you're familiar with church history, this is like a constant battle that the early church fathers are dealing with, is Gnosticism, and which is basically this idea that uh, God... Created the, uh, God made the material world out of something that already existed. That material world is inherently in some way evil or inferior. And so God's creation could be good, but it's, inha it's inhibited by the material reality. So we, as physical beings, 
even though we have some of the divine in us, we're actually trapped in these physical bodies, and that's causing the evil that's in the world, right? So in that sense, the material world itself is bad. It's evil. And the good thing is, is our souls, our spirits, and they're going to transcend our physical bodies, okay? So for somebody who's coming from this Gnostic way of thinking, you couldn't have this, this physical resurrection, and they would even see Jesus' resurrection often as a spiritual reality. He didn't really rise from the dead physically because the body's bad. If Jesus really is God or the Son of God, then, then he's going to resurrect in this spiritual reality, right? He's going to transcend his body, which is different from the Jewish and Old Testament conceptions of resurrection. So is this what's going on here? Well, Gnosticism full-blown doesn't happen for another hundred years or so. So it's probably not that, but there's a good chance it is this kind of proto-Gnosticism. So I know this is getting kind of weird, but I think you'll, you'll see how this, is, this will be relevant as we think about the resurrection here in a few minutes. So maybe this, somewhere in here, it seems to be this idea that, that there was some kind of spiritual resurrection without the hope of a bodily future resurrection. So that's probably what they mean by the resurrection has already happened. Okay, so Jesus, Jesus rises from the dead, and we, in our kind of conversion experiences, we, Paul says we're new creations, that's the resurrection, right? We've had this kind of spiritual experience where we now are this resurrected people, and it's kind of this spiritual reality. It's not going to be a physical reality, um, probably because of this idea of, of the material world being kind of bad, and we're going to move on from that. Um, <clears throat> so why is Paul really so concerned about physical resurrection, right? Like for him, like he's saying, don't worry about the babble and the, and the discussions and all that, but this is really important. This, this is upsetting the faith. This is, this is a big deal. So for Paul, this is a gospel issue. And we're going to see, I think we can see why he's so concerned about this in, if we look at 1 Corinthians. So if you're, if you're listening to our Mercy House University podcast, you've, you've heard this, we're talking a lot about 1 Corinthians 15 and the importance of the physical resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us as Christians. So you can turn with me there. Uh, I'm going to read it, but it's kind of a long passage. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, starting at verse 12. <clears throat> so Paul, clearly dealing with similar types of false teaching in Corinth, he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Okay, so it sounds similar to what Hymenaeus is saying. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, all, we are of all people most to be pitied. Okay, so, so if this resurrection is just this spiritual experience right now that has no future hope, he's like, this is all a waste of time. We're, we're just wasting our time trying to be Christians. We're, we're, we should be pitied by people as being foolish and, and ignorant. But in fact, it, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Christ's physical resurrection is pointing us forward to when we too will be resurrected. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then uh, comes the end, where, the believer, where he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected, that he is expected to put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. 
Okay, so there's a lot going on there. But we see that Christ's resurrection is a foretaste of our resurrection. And it's this inauguration of his kingdom, that Christ is now king. But if we don't have this future hope of this new creation where God is going to restore all things and resurrect the dead into this new life, this physical, material, new life, then all we have is this life right now. And yes, we, have, we can feel good spiritually because you know, we have Jesus by our side, but this world is still full of suffering, and it's still full of brokenness, and they're still full of sin. So if we don't have this future hope when someday God is going to make it all right, and he's going to bring justice for those who've been hurt and oppressed, and he's going uh, to wipe away the tears of those who are mourning, then what's the point? Then this time right now is just a, a waste of time. We actually looked at this a little bit last week uh, with just before this. Um, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Right? He's not saying we'll live with him in this spiritual way. So Paul talks about, you know, you've died with Christ, now you're alive in Christ. And there's a sense in which that's true now. But if it's not going to be true in this sense of future resurrection, that we are going to have new bodies and live forever with him, then we're missing the whole point. He says, if we endure with him, we'll also reign with him. So what Paul is getting is that we're, if we are sharing in Christ's resurrection, so the dead are not raised and Christ has not been raised, but if Christ has been raised, then we're going to be raised, and that is our hope. And we see in this, then, that creation is good, right? That God has made the world and the material world that it is good. So we see this in Genesis 1. And God is not going to abandon that creation. In fact, we see a God who's, who's in the business of taking things that are broken and restoring them to wholeness. Taking things that have been corrupted and diseased and healing them and bringing about new life. So God isn't just going to wipe this all away and start over. He's going to take what is broken and restore it into something new. And we'll see that, that, uh, that unlike a lot of our popular ways of thinking about Christianity as terms of, of heaven and hell and, oh, the whole point is, oh, you got to, you know, believe in Jesus, so you can go to heaven. Heaven is not the final destination. That's not what it's all about, right? The New Testament talks a little bit about heaven, and it may be some kind of waiting place. We're not exactly sure what it's going to be like, but the, the final vision is that God is going to make a new heaven and new earth, and God is going to dwell with us on that new earth. So for Paul, this issue of resurrection is a gospel issue, it's central to the teaching of Christ. So how do we know if our speech is being fruitless? Right? How do we know if we're distracting or taking away from the gospel? One of the ways is in terms of fruit. So Paul says that this is both fruitless and it's producing bad fruit. In Matthew, Jesus warns about this. He says, in uh, chapter 7, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit uh, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. So, one of the ways we'll know the truth is by the fruit that it produces. So, we see this other metaphor going on here. We've got the disease in the body, the gangrene. But there's another way that Paul commonly likes to talk about the truth, and he calls it sound doctrine. This word sound is actually the word for hygiene, literally healthy doctrine. So, you've got truth that builds up the body into health and wholeness. So true words lead to wholeness, right? So if, if, if uh, these careless false words lead to corruption and, and death, then true words lead to wholeness. So this isn't just about having this right abstract truth, right? We need to get all of our doctrine right. No, he's saying this has consequences. It has moral and ethical consequences. It, ha it, it brings life. It transforms people. It creates a community that is thriving and whole and unified. If not, we have division, we have brokenness, and ultimately we have death. 
So what's the alternative, right? How, how do we avoid this irreverent babbling? How do we actually uh, speak the truth in a way that is building up and bringing life? Paul tells Timothy to handle rightly the word of truth. Uh, so in verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now this thing translated rightly handling um, is actually mean, it can literally it just means to cut straight. So this word uh, orthotomeo, um, and you'll recognize the first part of that ortho is where we get orthodoxy, right? This is, is, is right or straight doctrine. And orthotomeo is actually used as a synonym by, or in the early church to mean orthodoxy often. So this is, Paul's talking about having a straight path. Um, so it's really interesting when you look at where else we see this coming from. And I think Paul is getting this um, from, uh, he's getting this from the Old Testament. So you've got to remember that Paul is just immersed in Scripture, right? He knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He's spent his whole life reading and studying it. And I think he's actually quoting or referencing maybe from Proverbs here. And he'd be referencing, because this word is used in the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is a Greek translation uh, of the Old Testament and the Hebrew. So this is done in the about 2nd century BC. Uh, there were 72, in theory, uh, supposedly 72 uh, Jewish scholars who did this translation, so that's why it's called the Septuagint, I mean 70. And uh, basically, a lot of what we see in the, Old in the New Testament is the New Testament writers quoting from the Septuagint. They're writing in Greek, they're reading in Greek, they're thinking in Greek, they're doing stuff in Greek. So a lot of times they actually quote and reference from the Greek Old Testament. And we see this here, this word, orthotomeo, pops up in Proverbs 3.6, uh, which some of you will be familiar with this verse, uh, starting, in, uh, in, well, starting in verse 5. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will bring healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. So you have an interesting, that similar reference there, that the, the straight path that the God is going to make for us is going to bring healing and life. Uh, again, this comes up, uh, actually the only other place it comes up is in Proverbs 11, uh, verse 5. It says, the righteousness of the innocent creates a level path, but the wicked fall by their wickedness. So Paul is talking about cutting straight uh, here, the word of truth. And we think of this as either like a level road, or some people think of it as like a farming metaphor. So you're plowing and you're creating a, a furrow in the ground. So maybe like the plowing or the farming metaphor is used already. And he contrasts this with swerving, right? Swerving back and forth. And you can see, so I grew up in California. Uh, if anybody spent time out west, uh, you'll know that the roads go a lot further and a lot straighter than they do out here. Uh, so this is the five freeway, which runs for hundreds of miles just up the center of California, just, just straight. You can see all the farms and the agriculture and just this straight thing, straight through the middle of it. Um, there's another picture, one you're just driving down. This is what it looks like, just for several hundred miles. <laughs> I've, I've literally seen people read books at the steering wheel because you don't need to turn, you don't need to, be, like, it just, it's straight. Um, and it's just like that. But you get where you're going, right? You don't have to worry about veering all over the place and getting lost. You just you get on the five and you drive for 300 miles. That's all you have to do. Um, and I think this, I don't know, this kind of helps us think about like this, this straight path, right? That we're not wavering to and, for, to and fro. So Paul is returning to the truth that was handed down to him, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this gospel has then been handed down to us in the scriptures that we have. So when we think about cutting straight the word of truth, I think what that means for us today is to take the word of God that's been given to us and to immerse ourselves into it, to study it, to do everything we can to understand it as well as we can, because that truth is going to give us, it's going to transform us and give us life, right? It's not just getting truth right so we can be right about everything. It's the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ will transform everything in our lives and will bring unity to God's people. So we need to cling to the word of God as our authority and as our measurement of what truth is. 
Because when we cling to that, we'll know when something is just irreverent babble. We'll know when something is just uh, this dissentious talk that's, that's causing problems. So there's a, how do, how do we do this? How do we go about cutting straight the word of truth? Um, because we do disagree, right? We disagree about all sorts of things when we read the Bible. And the reason we have lots and lots of denominations and churches is because people disagree about things. Um, there's, a, there's a quote, it's sort of been misattributed uh, mis, um, to Augustine. I think it actually supposedly comes up much later. But basically, this quote is, in, all, in essentials, unity, in not essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, this is kind of helpful. On one level, we think, okay, in, all, in essentials, unity. Um, what are the essentials? Right? And at some, at some level, nothing is, is non-essential. So I think you know, we don't want to just say, well, however you do baptism, it doesn't matter, whatever. Right? It's, not, it's not non-essential. It's important. Um, but what are the core things that we need to cling to above all else? What is the thing that Paul is most concerned about above all else? And it's the gospel. That Jesus Christ is God, second person of the Trinity, God in flesh, walked among us, was died on, on a cross for our sins, was resurrected again, and ascended to heaven where he is reigning. And because of that, we will reign with him, and we will have resurrected life with him. That is the gospel message. Uh, and it's, it's much more than that. It includes much more than that. We've got all of the Old Testament. We've got all of these different aspects to, to understand that and nuance that and understand all of the breadth of that. But we need to first need to ask, is this a gospel issue? Right? Because I think a lot of things we end up quarreling about are like, I didn't like that song. Oh, I'd rather have this kind of instrument. Or, you know, I think we should do things this way. Or the lights weren't the right. I like them. Right? Things that are just not important. <laughs> and there are whole denominations built over things like this. <laughs> right? I don't like the way you guys do this, so we're going to go start our own church. And, and it's just so destructive to the body of Christ to have that kind of division. Right? So we need to think about what are the things that we are clinging to and are they things that are actually uh, essentials at the core of what this message is? But then as we come to Scripture, I think there's some helpful ways to think about handling Scripture and, and cutting, cutting Scripture. Um, not cutting things out of Scripture, but cutting through Scripture, this narrow, this straight path. So there are two elements to think about when we think about Scripture. Uh, and those of you who were at membership class yesterday, we talked about this. Uh, you have the fact that it was both written by God and written by humans. Right, it's called confluence, that, that both God is the author and humans are the author. And so one of the ways I think to helpful remember this as we think about the human author is to remember that, that Scripture was written for us, but not to us. This is a little pithy, anti-right phrase that I found really helpful. It's written for us, but it's not written to us. So as we're studying the book of 2 Timothy this semester, right, this is not, it wasn't a letter written to us in the 21st century with us in mind, right? Paul wrote this letter in the first century, probably around 66 or 67 AD, from prison in Rome to his good buddy Timothy, who's in Ephesus, right? This is all happening in a place and time. And Paul's writing to Timothy to encourage him in specific situations with specific things that are going on. So we need to think about that. Why, why is Paul saying this to Timothy? What's going on in Timothy's life? What is Paul really concerned about? But at the same time, as we think about that, we know that God has, has orchestrated all of Scripture and inspired all of Scripture. So at the same time, we say, okay, well, cool, Paul wrote this thing to Timothy in 67 AD. Why do I care today? Well, because God gave this to us as Scripture. He inspired it. So that has all kinds of things to say to us today. It's authoritative for us today. And so as we start to unpack Scripture, we both need to pay attention to this human element of what is the historical context, what's going on at the time, what, what, are, what is happening, but also thinking about the whole of Scripture as this Word of God for us. And so one of the other keys here is to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So as you're reading the Bible, you both pay attention to what's going on here, why is Paul saying this, what is he concerned about, what are the events that are going on, who the heck is Hymenaeus. But then you look at, okay, I don't understand this phrase here. Paul seems to be saying something really weird. 
But I'm going to look over here what he says in Romans. And I'm going to look at what Jesus is saying in the Gospel of John. And how are they referencing Moses from Exodus? Right? And as you start to put all those pieces together, it, you can start to make sense of the more obscure passages by using the more obvious ones. Right? So we have really obvious passages where Paul is like, salvation is by, faith, through, or, uh, by grace through faith, not by works. Okay, great. But then he talks a lot about works. Well, how do we interpret that? Well, he's saying, yeah, first you receive the gospel, right? That God has given you this gift of grace, but then you live in obedience, right? So we, we don't go back to trying to, to earn our salvation. We already have that. It's a gift. It's a free gift. But then we know God is using good works to transform us and to uh, take his gospel message and this good news to the world. So we're able to hold those things in tension because we use scripture to interpret scripture. So those are kind of the, what we call exegesis, right? We're kind of the, the, the science and the tools of studying the text itself. Uh, but then there's also this element of, of hermeneutics or interpretation. So we pray, right? We come to Scripture and we pray. We ask God, give, give me wisdom. Because his Holy Spirit, who inspired the words themselves to be written down, are, is also inspiring uh, and giving us discernment and wisdom as we read the text, and so we need to pray as we come to the text to begin to understand what's going on. The other element I think it's really important is, is to have communal interpretation, right? Because every one of us is coming from a particular context, right? As 21st century people, we have a totally different set of values and priorities and questions than Paul does, right? He's, he's Jewish and speaking Greek, and he's a Roman citizen, in the first century, and just has a totally different set of cultural and social situations and assumptions that he's dealing with. And that doesn't mean there are uni sort of universal human experiences that we can kind of relate with Paul, but there's also a big gap there. So what we need to do as we read the text is not just say, oh, my, my interpretation is the right interpretation, right? Which is, again, is how we often end up with all of these different denominations, is, is I, my interpretation must be the final one, because I read it. And it makes sense to me. But re re coming to it humbly and recognizing, you know, I, I am a small human with a very limited perspective. So, so looking at the full breadth of the church as they've read the same text and wrestled through the same text. And so we can do that both globally and historically. So looking at what are, what are Christians in Africa thinking about this text? How are they reading this and understanding it? What questions are they asking? What about the church in China? What about the church in South America? And then we go back and we read the history, right? What, what did uh, Polycarp think of this? What did, what did uh, Augustine think about this when he was writing about this? What, what are the Greek fathers thinking in the 3rd and 4th century as they're wrestling through these questions? We need to go back and read through our history, right? Because we, we end up both as, as Protestants, uh, but also just as modern people of, of not even thinking about the past. And so we end up interpreting all of Scripture through our current contemporary lens and our current contemporary questions. And they're important questions that I think Scripture does indirectly address and answer. But we need to understand that that, that way of thinking is not always going to be the ultimate way of thinking about the text. Does that make sense? So we need, we need to wrestle through the text with the full breath of the church as part of that process. And then ultimately, as Paul talks about, that this should create... Uh, unity and fruit. Um, so I think uh, Augustine has this concept of a hermeneutics of charity. So this is the idea of love, right? Jesus says that the great commandment, the great first two great commandments are that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. So we read the text and we think, okay, how does this accomplish that? Like if that's what God is trying to do, trying to uh, instill in us to love him with all that we are, and to love the people around us with all that we are, how is this accomplishing that? Because if I'm reading this and thinking, oh, this makes me feel better than all the people around me, maybe I'm missing something. Right? Maybe I'm not understanding the grace of the gospel if it's producing self-righteousness and pride or arrogance or causing this division. So we need to ask, as we read Scripture and, and wrestle with to right, trying to rightly handle the word, of truth, is, is this producing fruit? So is this producing people who love God and love their neighbor? 
And is this producing unity in the body of Christ? Right? Is the body more healthy, more sound because of what we're reading and interpreting and understanding? So it's, it's a challenging process, right? It is, it is a wrestling as we attempt to, to rightly handle the word of truth, right? This is, this is a, a skill and a thing that we learn. If you're going through the discipleship groups, this is one of the, you've got a section on, on Bible study, and it's talking about how do, how do we study the Bible, right? This is something we learn how to do, and it's, it's hard. But it produces fruit, that when we understand the gospel, it changes everything. It transforms our life. It creates a community of people who have transformed and who live with this future hope of resurrection, that someday we are going to be resurrected like Christ. So our words matter. These careless words are like a disease that destroys the body of Christ, but words that are true bring health and life and build us up in love. Coming back to that issue of resurrection, I think there's still a lot of ways in which today we actually hold to kind of a Gnostic way of thinking about resurrection. I think it's one of those things that just comes back over and over and over again. And so the way we often talk about heaven, right, whether it's like all dogs go to heaven or the way we share the gospel is you need to pray this prayer and accept Jesus into your heart so you can go to heaven. It's actually, I think, to miss the point of a lot of the New Testament. New Testament talks a little bit about heaven. It's really not that concerned with it. And we spend a lot of time speculating like, well, am I going to have a big mansion if I live a really good life? You know, is my, yeah, my pet's going to be there. We just spend all this time trying to figure out what heaven's going to be like. The Bible really isn't that concerned about heaven, really. It's this place where we're going to hang out for a bit, waiting for the resurrection. That's what we're waiting for. That's the thing that we have all of our hope placed in, is that because of what Christ has done, because of his death and because of his resurrection, we too will experience resurrection. So as we think about this, how in the church and as we're sharing the gospel, are we too giving people a false understanding of the resurrection? Are we giving them this conception that, well, your body's going to die, but your soul's going to float up to heaven where you're going to hang out with Jesus forever? Like, no. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what's going to happen in the in-between time and how that soul, body, like what's going to happen with our souls during that time. Are we going to be asleep? Are we going to be hanging out with God and totally conscious of that whole time? I don't know. <laughs> I don't have the answer to that one. But I know that what we're waiting for is this new creation where God is going to make all things new and resurrect us to live forever with him in bodies. And we don't know what those bodies are going to be like. Are they going to be like Jesus' body where he's walking through doors and things like that? I don't know. Some kind of extra dimension we don't understand yet. But we're going to have these, these material bodies and living in a material world uh, and doing, having this physical life with God. And God is going to be present with us on earth not in heaven. That's not where our future eternity lies. So something we should think about as we think about sharing the gospel and as we think about our own faith, what am I hoping for? Am I hoping for heaven? Or am I hoping for new creation when God is going to make all things new and restore that which has been broken and corrupted by sin? Finally, as we think about this, to come back again over and over to this core thing that Paul is so concerned about. And this is the gospel. Um, and he, he says that... <clears throat> uh, he says that when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible in word, were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul's coming back to this core thing that I, I gave to you, Christ and Christ crucified. This is the hope that you have. And obviously, for Paul, clearly the resurrection is in, is in there. It's not explicitly mentioned in this verse but it's part of the hope and the faith that we have. <clears throat> Lastly here, he, he ends on this kind of weird quotation uh, to Timothy. He says, but God's firm foundation, this in verse 19, stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. 
So this, it's just kind of a weird finish to this, <laughs> I think. And what he's giving Timothy is this assurance. He's giving, and he's giving him this assurance actually by quoting and referencing a passage from Numbers. So again, he's quoting from the Septuagint here. It's a direct quotation from Numbers 16.5. He says, the Lord knows those who are his. And there's a reference to a rebellion against Moses. So Moses is leading the people of God, and there are people in the Israelite community who are rebelling against Moses. They're like, Moses, we're tired of your leadership. We don't like what you're doing. We think we should do something else. Right? So they're, they're false teachers there in the people of Israel. And Tim, uh, Paul is reminding Timothy of this story. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord is going gonna, is gonna to divide between those who are his and those who are not. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And this might be a reference to verse 26 of chapter 16 in Numbers, where he says, Separate yourselves from the tents of these stubborn men, and touch nothing that belongs to them, lest ye be consumed with them in all their sin. So he's giving two things. One, one hand, God's going to sort this all out. Right? It's kind of scary, right? Like, we, we need to protect the gospel. We need to hold on to the truth. And it can cause us, I think, to, to turn inwards and to be afraid, afraid that we have to hold it all together. And Paul's like, no, God, is, God has got this, right? He, he is the one who is holding his truth together. He is the one who's sustaining his truth. He's the one who's holding and sustaining his church. It's not all on you, Timothy. But withdraw from those who are causing division, right? So it's this, it's this both and. Like on one hand, don't, Timothy, don't worry about it, right? Like at the end of the day, God is in control, right? So, so our words matter. It's important that we, that we hold on to the truth and that we call out and rebuke false teaching because it's dangerous. But God knows who those who are his and he is going to hold everything together. It's not all on our shoulders. So I hope that is encouraging if you're sitting here worried about, oh, we've got to get it all just right. <laughs> yes, we should, we should strive to, to cut straight the word of God because it's going to bring life. But the word of God tells us that God is the one who is in control of all things, and we can trust and rest in him. <clears throat> so as we think about this resurrection, it's another element that we don't always think about uh, when we come to the table, but it's a really important one. We often think about this as, as a looking backwards, and it is. We're looking back to the night when Jesus was betrayed, He's there with his disciples. His death is coming up, impending, as he's looking forward. And he takes the bread, and he breaks it, and says, this is my body, broken for you. And similarly, he takes the cup, and he says, this is my blood, poured out for you. Shed as a, it's a ransom for many. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to die. And even though they don't know this, Yet, even though he's told them over and over and over again that he's going to rise again in three days, and they just haven't gotten it yet. Right, but he's going to his death. And we look back to that, to that death, which is what gives us the hope and life we have, because if we've died with him, we will also live with him. So, so the death is important. Right? We look back to the death, that Jesus has died. He's taken on all the weight of sin and death. But in the resurrection, death is defeated. Death has no more power. And so we come to this table both in that looking back to what God has accomplished in history, but also in this present moment we share together in that new life, that life that we have as we come to the table, all of us, experiencing that same grace, coming from that same brokenness as people who were dead in our sins but have been made alive in Christ. But we also, at the same time, do that in the hope and joy of looking forward. Because <laughs> Revelation, the book of Revelation talks about that we're going to have the wedding feast of the Lamb. And Chris talked about this a few weeks ago, that, that we're going to have our resurrected bodies. And God is going to be there with us. And we are going to eat and drink together. I don't know what we're going to eat and drink in the new creation. Maybe it won't be all that different than what we're eating and drinking now. Maybe it'll be something we can't even imagine. But we're going to eat with God, and drink with God. And so we come to this table in hopeful expectation of the resurrection that we too will experience someday. So I'm going to pray, and if you're here and you're a Christian, 
You have died with him and now are alive with him. And I'm invite you to come to this table in hope and in joy, holding on to that word of truth, which has brought life. And you're going to, uh, we're going to come in this way, so you're going to make two lines in the center. You're going to receive the bread, just as you received the grace of Christ freely. And you're going to take the cup and come back down to your seat. If you're here this morning and you've never experienced that, you don't know what it's like to have that hope of future life when God is going to make all things new. And I want to invite you this morning to, well, first stay at your seat right now during this time, but to also to pray and think about this. To Have you experienced that life that is made possible in Christ, that is offered you freely in Christ? And I want to invite you right now in this time that maybe you're there and, and you say, I want that life. I want that hope. To, to right now, to pray and receive that and, and come and talk to us. We want to talk to you about what does it mean to be a Christian, to live this life with Christ. Um, but either way, spend this time at your seat and, and reflecting on these truths. Uh, at the same time as this is happening, there'll be some of us in the back who would love to pray with you or would love for you to pray with us. So uh, feel free and please come back to the back for prayer during this time as well. So I'm going to pray and then invite you to the table. Lord, we thank you for your word that is truth, that you are truth. God, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that you have given us a path, God, that we don't need to sway, we don't need to wander around, we don't need to be uh, blown about by every wind of doctrine. God, we uh, have you, who is our hope and our life. So God, will we cling to you this morning, to your word and the life that is revealed to us in it, God, that you have uh, come down to dwell among us, that you have given yourself up for us, and that you have risen again and ascended, that we too would rise again someday. Lord, may we uh, just find our hope in that truth and that reality this morning. And would we uh, just come together in unity as we take, uh, as we receive this bread and this cup, and are reminded of who you are and the hope that we have. So we pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.